With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Who is the greatest African Premier League player of all time? See if your choice made our list on Match of the Day Africa Top 10, a new podcast from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello and welcome to World Business Report on the BBC World Service. Will Bain again today. Thanks for being back with us. On the programme, the US Treasury Secretary heads to Beijing, but with so many trade tensions in play, what realistically can actually be achieved? We'll be taking a look in just a moment. One of the issues is around chips, and now two critical minerals uh, for their manufacturing uh, are uh, potentially being uh, sanctioned as part of those trade tensions. Sit tight. We're going to have a science, history and economics lesson all rolled into one on gallium and germanium. The message from China, though, is apparently pretty simple. What I believe they're doing is they're saying, OK, you want to play the game. Now there's two players. And the tech giant Lenovo tells us not to panic on AI. There's no turning back the clock on this. And so rather than turning away, I think the point is, how can we influence the future? And so I'm tremendously bullish to harness that for the innovation we need to continue to enjoy the fruits of technology. More from Art Hugh, Chief Information Officer at Lenovo, on how AI is already shaping their business and the products we buy from them before we leave you today on World Business Report. We start, though, well, virtually at least, somewhere over the Pacific Ocean because that's where the United States Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is currently, heading for a high-level meeting in Beijing, trying to ease... Well, so many tensions from geopolitics to trade to spy balloons that it does seem an almost impossible task. In a moment, some of the key components caught up in those trade tensions. But first, Anna Swanson writes about trade and international economics for The New York Times. She walked us through what might be on the agenda and why the meeting was happening now. I think this is a very important trip for both the Biden administration and the Chinese government to kind of put a floor under the relationship and try to halt um, the general decline in relations that we've seen in recent months. So the U.S.-China relationship has been um, pretty rocky uh, so far this year. There was a big fallout following uh, the flight of a Chinese surveillance balloon across the United States, a kind of big rupturing of diplomatic ties. And an earlier trip by the U.S. Secretary of State to China was canceled. So he was able to go to China recently. Um, And then this visit by Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, kind of further underlines uh, the interest from the Biden administration in keeping this, um, you know, more collaborative, more cooperative relationship, despite the very real tensions between the countries. Right. And obviously important that it's the Treasury Secretary, because a lot of those other tensions beyond the the geopolitical ones that you uh, neatly laid out, Anna, have been around trade and particularly trade of, I guess, what we'd see as technologies of the future. 
Yeah, that's right. So, of course, the Trump administration imposed really hefty tariffs on China. And, you know, those are very controversial and those are still in place. The Biden administration has kept those in place. But recently, the focus has really shifted to technology, specifically things like uh, advanced chips. So the Biden administration has put very tough restrictions on the kinds of chips that can be sent to China. They have real concerns about the Chinese military or surveillance state using American technologies in ways that are counter to U.S. national security. And China has responded very angrily about these restrictions. And there are more restrictions coming in the pipeline as well. So this is a very tense and tough issue right now and sure to be one of the main focuses of contention for the trip. Yeah, given that backdrop, I mean, what would success look like for this trip? Just it going off with everybody shaking hands? or Yeah, I think expectations for this trip are pretty modest, as they have been for many meetings between the US and China. You know, the goal is really to restore diplomatic relations, to, you know, make sure that both the US and China are able to cooperate in the economic sphere on things that um, don't particularly pertain to national security, just kind of normal everyday trade. I think for Janet Yellen, she's also quite interested in issues like, you know, debt restructuring, uh, the the loans that the Chinese government has issued to other countries um, and making sure that those are paid back in a responsible way and not something that drags on the global economy. The Biden administration would also like to continue cooperating with China when it comes to issues like climate change. So it's really all about setting a floor for kind of the more basic cooperation despite these tensions. And those points you raise, Anna, I mean, that is why people well outside the US and China are watching this trip and looking at it because it's affecting businesses and and national governments all around the world. Absolutely. Yeah, these are, you know, two of the biggest economies in the world. And the ramifications of their relationship really are global. And when it comes to these tensions, the Biden administration is, of course, now also pressuring allies to take a similar stance um, on China when it comes to things like technology restrictions or human rights considerations. The Chinese government is also reaching out to other countries to kind of make new alliances. So there's really a lot of uh, dimensions to the US and China rivalry beyond just the the two governments themselves. Anna Swanson of the New York Times. Well, Anna talked of some of those tit-for-tat responses. And one of the areas in particular has been around microchips or semiconductors, the processing machinery to make them, the types of chips companies that are allowed to export to China and the US. And this week, a move around two obscure yet pretty key minerals. China announced restrictions on gallium and germanium, which the US says are critical to the production of semiconductors, missile systems and solar cells. For a history, science and economics lesson all rolled up into one, we called up Jack Lifton of the Critical Minerals Institute. Gallium and germanium are not related in nature. They're both very rare metals that are byproducts of other metals. Gallium reports in aluminum, typically less than 50 parts per million. Until the end of uh, World War II, it, it was not recovered because it was too expensive. What happened at that point, this is important, it turned out that plutonium has six phases, six crystal arrangements at room temperature. One of them is the best for making bombs, but to stabilize it, they had to make an alloy of gallium and plutonium. There was no gallium. It was just a laboratory curiosity. So uh, the War Department, as it was called then, 
went to Alcoa, the building company of America, and they said, we want tons of gallium. They said, we can't afford to build a plant just for that. It would be $10 million then, which is like $100 million now. And so the Defense Department said, we'll pay for the plant. It's a gift. We need the gallium. So they did that. After the war, there was gallium everywhere. There'd never been any. So the electronic researchers made various gallium alloys. One of them was called gallium arsenide. And it turned out that you could make an electronic switch with gallium arsenide that was many, many times faster than a germanium semiconductor. And so, Jack, what and do they, they use the, those type of chips in these days? What type of products for is that? Op- optoelectronics, something requires very high-speed switching. Such right? as? Let's say uh, television. Mm-hmm. That's the uh, typical civilian use. So... The gallium comes from aluminum processing, and the germanium comes from zinc processing. So our companies here in America today, they take these residues and they ship them to guess where? You're right, China. Because China maintains the world's largest capacity for turning these two metals into ultra-high purity compounds that are used to make electronic devices. Now, the point is, the total of the two Germanium world production is about 140 tons a year, and all of that's processed as far as I know in China. Gallium is probably more than 300 tons a year, and probably all of that is processed in China. So the issue is, even though like the United States produces germanium concentrate, and we can produce gallium concentrate, we don't process it here. It goes to China. And so as a result, these export controls could be significant then by the sound of things. Yeah, and the thing is that the Chinese are talking about restrictions, not prohibitions. What I believe they're doing is they're saying, okay, you want to play the game, now there's two players. You're saying that your government will decide which chips from China American company can buy, and your government will not allow the export of these super high-tech machinery used to make chips. So here's what we're going to do. We're not going to sell you any more of the raw materials that you use in those chip-making machines. Well, we will sell it to you, but we have to decide what you're using. You know, I know what they're going to do. They're going to say for non-military use, or they're going to say only on Friday if it's in a a month with 30 days. (laughs) Right. I mean, they can do whatever they want. The point is they're simply retaliating against what they consider an insult by the United States government. And as a result, Jack, I'm guessing the price almost certainly will go up then. Well, these are, you can imagine, these are expensive items. Uh, look, when you use them, use them in very small quantities. So the price can go up. That doesn't make a difference. The supply is the issue. That's the real and issue. Is there, are uh, there alternatives? No, no. Nowhere in the world? No. No, I mean, uh, the, <laughs> you're talking about the result. Shockley and Bardeen invented the transistor in 1947. There's been a lot of work done in the last 70 years. This is the result. I don't can't imagine a substitute for germanium in its applications or for gallium. So what are the answers I then? Mean, the answer is for the United States and Europe to develop processing capacity. We can get the raw materials, we just can't process them. Now, we invented all these processes. I worked on ultra-purification of germanium probably 60 years ago. I mean, we know how to do it. We invented this, but we stopped doing it because it was cheaper to buy it from the Chinese, right? So now we have to change our attitude and say, how important is security of supply and self-sufficiency? And if you capitalize those two factors, you wind up 
with making these things ourselves. This is the big mistake. They all thought, what difference does it make? If we offer enough money, anybody will sell to you. And it turns out there's a limit to the Chinese capacity for being insulted. Jack Lifton of the Critical Minerals Institute speaking to us from Detroit, Michigan there. Susan Schmidt, head of public equity at the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, joining us from Chicago to take a look through the market. Susan, great to have you back on World Business Report. Thank you. And whilst the sort of politics might all be around the Treasury Secretary's trip, the market was much more interested in minutes from the Federal Reserve today. That's right. So minutes from the Federal Reserve's last meeting in June were released today. And that's always of interest to the market because investors want to know the the nitty gritty, the detail behind what the actual statement is and how the different governors on that Fed board are viewing the economy right now. We saw those minutes come out and it reinforces the idea for investors that there will be additional rate increases. And the pause that we saw at the last meeting really is just that, a temporary pause. Expectations for an increase in the July meeting have now increased from 60-some percent immediately after the last meeting to now 80-plus percent after seeing comments from the Fed chair and reading these minutes. And one of the key areas that they were worried about was what they call a tight labour market, not much unemployment. That's right. And we've seen tremendous resiliency in the labour market and tremendous resiliency in the consumer who who just hasn't slowed down in their spending. So we continue to see this core inflation, core consumer price index year over year hover at around 4.5%. The Fed's target is 2%. Mm. They really need to cool things off. So they have quite a ways to go yet. Yeah. Uh, On the other side of the world, on the other side of the debate that we started the program with, Susan, um, other stock markets were moved by data out of China today to do with with the services sector. Absolutely. And remember that China their economy almost as important as ours to the investor base in the U.S. because we're looking to them to also see how their economy impacts the global economy. So we have this circular function here. And the services data, economic data that came out of China this morning, shows that services aren't growing as quickly as expected. That demand is not as robust as investors were hoping for. So we are seeing a recovery as China emerges from COVID, but we aren't seeing that expansionary growth yet. And investors will watch that closely. Quite the twin headache for Susan and her colleagues on Wall Street. Susan Schmidt, Head of Public Equity at the State of Wisconsin Investment Board. Thanks so much for your time. Well, another challenge for investors uh, in particular, and all of us alike really around the the business world is around AI, isn't it? A fascinating challenge and an opportunity too. Perhaps nowhere is that more obvious than in the tech we use at home and at work. So a company like Lenovo, working with both, is on the front line, so to speak, of how AI is already shaping the world at this early stage. Art Hu, Lenovo's chief information officer, told me more about how the company is doing just that, both for its customers and with its own staff. We've been committed to AI for the better part of a decade. I think it's really within the last six or seven months with generative AI being a specialized subset that's really reignited the public imagination and therefore driving a lot more focus on that. Public imagination? What about your imagination? Yes. And I think we welcome that because it actually creates an even greater imperative to innovate. Give us a couple of examples, if you can, Art. Where is it being used already in Lenovo's products and your hardware? 
So for example, if it looks like your computer is running slowly because there's not enough memory, well, that can actually be an alert and provide a suggestion to the customer to buy some more memory for an entirely new experience. Now, in the data center space, we could actually tell when hard drives have too many failing sectors and are about to completely stop working. And instead of waiting for it to fail, we can actually detect that, ship a hard drive or multiple hard drives out to our customers, and then install it before it ever becomes an issue. And we're figuring out how to introduce generative AI in the right scenarios so that it becomes much more capable and much more helpful. Just as a personal level, Art, I know I'm asking a very techie person this, but how do you find dealing with chatbots? Because I would say they are, uh, they certainly divide opinion in how much people enjoy speaking to them compared to a real person, right? Yes, exactly. And I think this is where we can look at the iteration and the evolution of both where we've come from as well as the promise. Certainly the most basic chatbots where they have very mechanical answers and you can almost tell how the knowledge tree is structured underneath it. With generative AI, though, you find that it becomes much more flexible. And as we continue to experiment, I'm encouraged by the pace of innovation. You can almost see month by month the improvements that are being made in terms of ability to fine tune. So I do believe in the coming months and quarters, we're going to see continuous improvements away from what, you know, let's just say your father or mother's chatbot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, area, as you mentioned, that's changing very quickly as a result regulation around it changing very quickly too. How difficult is that for companies to kind of keep up with the pace of the changes in those rules? How kind of dynamic do you have to be to to fit with what is clearly a pretty quickly changing regulatory landscape too? Yes, absolutely. I think with any technology that's really bursting onto the scene, the most important part is to be a responsible participant so that we remain firmly grounded in making sure that it's actually creating something of value for our customers, understanding how the technology is changing. Because even month to month, with much of the research being open sourced and being made into tools that are effective, the art of the possible is constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. And then finally, Will, what you said, uh, it's important as a responsible stakeholder that we are aware both of our internal guardrails, but also what are the guardrails that the various countries and regulatory regimes are coming into. Now, the important part is there is a ongoing dialogue because no one knows what the end state is. And so I think everyone is figuring out how to both experiment, but do so in a responsible way. Has that meant a need to hire people, though, you know, lawyers, I'm guessing, or or people to work specifically around some of these ethics and regulatory questions? I think certainly it's an investment with any new topic to get up to speed requires a little bit of a a bubble investment up front to make sure that you can onboard the right knowledge and then start applying it the right way. One of the other fears, and and I think fears is probably the right word here, but feel free to pick me up on it, is around jobs that companies will need human beings for going forward. I know you've talked about making you more efficient as a company at Lenovo. You've talked about the idea of smart manufacturing. I mean, bluntly, does that mean people losing their jobs, do you think? Well, our experience has actually not been that at all. And I think it goes back to how Lenovo thinks about AI. Many people think of the A as being artificial. And that's true. But the way we really approach it within Lenovo is to have another A adjective, and that's augmented because it means putting people at the center where people have to take the lead. And therefore, it is not an either then, which is either the chatbot takes your job or you continue to do it. In fact, what it does and what we've seen time and again is that, for example, as a chatbot, it'll do a lot of the work. And then what we find is that the person who was originally doing that work is able to actually move on to something that's much more value added. 
Maybe a brief example here could help. Around chatbots specifically, we now are able to resolve over half of our internal IT service requests via chatbot. Now, did we exit half the team? No, we didn't. In fact, my team that handles the digital workplace and the end user support has actually grown because instead of simply answering phones or typing into a chat manually, they've become knowledge engineers thinking how can they introduce the right tools? How can they curate the knowledge? How can they make it kind of freeze up their, work their workload a bit for them? Exactly. And so what we found is it actually, it's the win-win when you think about it and approach it the right way. It's not that people are losing job. People are actually doing more interesting job. And because it creates more value that those actually grow. That's Art Who of Lenovo. You're listening to World Business Report on the BBC World Service. There's been a huge investment in renewable energy in recent years as the world tries to wean itself off fossil fuels. But most of it has been in the developed world. And if we're really going to tackle climate change, developing countries are going to need investment too. And that's the warning in a new report from the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. Richard Bolwin is the agency's head of investment research. In developing countries, the needs for investment in renewable energy are about 1.7 trillion per year. And they're really only getting about 550 billion in international investment every year. So there's really a big gap there. It's most severe in the poorest countries, obviously, and there's there's several reasons for that. Uh, there's a big factor there that is the, the cost of capital. I mean, these countries often have risk ratings that are not favorable for attracting international investment. Uh, and already potentially have large debts and things already as well. Yes, they're close to or in debt distress, and that really doesn't help the cost of capital, which in the case of renewables is, of course, a big factor. Because if you think about electricity generation through renewables, of course, all the capital expenditures are up front compared to fossil fuel electricity generation. And so cost of capital is a major disincentive for the transition to, to renewables. There's other factors too. Uh, Developing countries have, as all countries, uh, in compliance with the Paris Agreement, set out plans for emissions reductions, but very often they're not accompanied by very clear investment requirements and asset planning. And that doesn't give investors the sort of certainty they need to plan out their investments. So there's some real support needed from multilateral agencies, for example, to help with uh, project preparation. And we know, Richard, as you rightly say, with projects like these, once you start falling behind, It's actually even more difficult to chase it, too, because they take a long time to come on stream to start helping put money back into the funding pool again. I guess the worry is then that the gap between the rich and poor nations around renewable energy just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger as that time goes on. It could well be. It could well be. And renewables investment since 2015, when the Paris Agreement was reached, has tripled. But most of that has gone to developed countries. So that gap is already increasing. So if you look at the developing regions, the growth in renewables investment has barely outpaced GDP growth. So it's nothing spectacular. And and now we're speaking about uh, the, the, the circumstances for international investment were really quite ideal. Interest rates were extremely low. And so if we look now at a period that interest rates might rise and are rising, it will only get more difficult for uh, countries, with, especially with a higher cost of capital, to catch up. In terms of pathways to solutions to that problem, do you have thoughts around that, ideas around that, what you think needs to be happening in the next few years? Well, there's several things. So one is, of course, we need to support developing countries with better asset planning for the energy transition to allow two things. One, it allows the constructions of what we call pipelines of bankable projects. But 
It also allows the use of investment promotion mechanisms that are more geared towards the energy sector. Uh, right now, many developing countries are using the same types of fiscal incentives that they're using for any type of industry to try and attract investment. But for energy investment, there are some specific mechanisms that work better. Uh, another area of support is on international investment policies. International investment agreements need to be much more conducive to promoting and facilitating inter, uh, investment in the energy transition. We're also proposing a series of partnerships for the promotion of investment in energy. And uh, one of the key elements of partnership is partnerships between international investors, multilateral development banks and governments. Because we show in our report how the cost of capital, uh, this major factor I talked about earlier, can be reduced by about 40% through the use of public-private partnerships with international investors and multilateral development banks. A final thought on that, though. We've heard a lot of talk about debt relief, debt forgiveness. That does sound like that would be an aid in all of this if some of those agreements could be met for some of the countries that you were talking about. I think you're right. It is not simple. It is <laughs> complex. But it is a conclusion that we draw as well in the sense that if we recognize that the cost of capital is a major obstacle in the transition from fossil fuel to renewables, then we also have to recognize that that cost of capital is very much driven by debt distress in developing countries. That's Richard Bolwin, Head of Investment Research at the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. Let's end the programme hitting the railways because a new railway could make Southern Africa the world's most important suppliers of key minerals. That's the hope anyway for the Libito Corridor, which will cross Angola and link up with the mining areas of Katanga province in the DRC and in the... Uh, across the border in the Copper Belt of northern Zambia as well. According to the Angolan government, the consortium known as Libito Atlantic Railways will spend nearly $100 million on a 400-kilometre railway line in the DRC and nearly $500 million on the overall trade route. So, how important is the trade collar corridor? Here is Cesar Chilo, an economist and associate director at the Southern African Institute for Policy and Research in Lusaka, Zambia. It's a joint investment by three countries. And that means that it starts to address the deficits on infrastructure in Africa and helps particularly countries like Zambia that are landlocked to be more land-linked um, through so improving infrastructure, having an outlet. There's big mineral resources in Angola, in Zambia, in DRC. And for countries like Zambia and DRC that don't have uh, significant or strong port facilities at the sea or access to the sea is going to be important as an outlet for trade to the rest of the world, but also for trade between the three countries. Um, if you look at uh, Angola and DRC, every year they import uh, in just food items, they import about $1 billion to $2.5 billion worth of commodity. And if you remember, uh, agricultural commodities, foodstuffs, they need to be transported in bulk. So definitely for economics, for trade, this is going to be very important. Um, it also improves the geopolitical spaces for the three countries and makes them more influential in terms of setting the tone, setting the pace for uh, other countries to follow suit as Africa pursues uh, continental integration under the African Union and the Africa continental free trade area. That's Cesar Chilo, an economist and associate director at the Southern African Institute for Policy 
and research there. Speaking to us from the Zambian capital, Lusaka. Plenty more of that story on our website, bbc.com forward slash news as well. More on those US-China trade talks on business matters if you can join us at midnight GMT on the World Service. And if you can't stay up till then, well, check out the podcast. It's where you always get yours from. Thanks for listening. In 2011, the Fukushima nuclear power plant on the east coast of Japan was struck by a tsunami. It triggered the world's worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. We are in a nuclear emergency. Fukushima, an original audio drama series from the BBC World Service, tells the story of how the disaster unfolded and of those living with its aftermath. I'll never be able to separate myself from it. Catch up with the whole series now by searching for Fukushima wherever you get your BBC podcasts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.